bow with me once more as we approach Revelation 19. Father, you have given us your word. You've given us this text, and and we believe, Lord, that the verses we're going to read today are your word for us today. That when we read these words, you are speaking to our church something that we need to know and hear and embrace and be shaped by and respond to. And so, Lord, as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit that I might speak the very utterances of God. Lord, fill my brothers and sisters with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that that he would do more in their hearts than any one sermon could ever do. Bring change, uh, bring comfort and excitement and anticipation, uh, bring conviction and encouragement and energy to the mission that you've given us. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation 19 uh, is where we're going to be today. Our passage today is uh, the end of a section on the judgment of the great prostitute Babylon, this evil world system which John and his audience lived in and in which we live today. And what we're going to see in our text today is that the fall of Babylon is good news. But we'll see that it's not just good news because Babylon is evil, the fall of Babylon is also good news because of what comes next. When Babylon is gone, when this evil world is gone, that will pave the way for something beautiful. With that, let's read Revelation 19, 1 through 10. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me? in honor of the reading of God's word. Revelation 19, 1 through 10, the Holy Spirit says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, 
reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Alyssa and I were engaged for four months before we got married. By today's standards, that's a pretty short engagement, but I am telling you it was the longest four months of my life because I was so excited to marry my bride. But I had to wait because there was a lot to prepare. A wedding takes a lot of preparation. There's the dress, the invitations, the venue, the flowers, and not just the ceremony itself, but getting married takes a lot of preparation. Uh, we did premarital counseling. We had to get our marriage license. We had to move all of our stuff out of the apartments we had been living in and move them all uh, into the new apartment that we would be sharing together. So there was a lot to do, and, and it wasn't always enjoyable stuff that had to be done, but it was a joyful process, and what kept me going through it all was that I was longing for my wedding day. Well, Revelation 19, 1 through 10 was given to the church so that we would long for our wedding day, the ultimate wedding day. There is coming a day when Jesus will return for his bride. We will be joined to him, never to be separated again. We will celebrate and rejoice. We'll delight in him, in his presence, for all of eternity. But there are some things that have to happen to get to that day. There's some events that have to happen, and we need to anticipate those events. But there are also ways that we need to prepare ourselves for that day. So my prayer is that our study of Revelation 19 today would help us live in light of what is coming in the future. And in all of this, the message that I believe Jesus would have us receive from this passage is long for your wedding day. Long for your wedding day. And I see two ways to long for your wedding day in this passage. First of all, anticipate God's salvation through judgment. 
anticipate God's salvation through judgment. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. So uh, in chapter 18, John heard voices announcing Babylon's fall, and they called on heaven to rejoice. And now heaven responds to that call, and heaven rejoices. The loud voice of a great multitude in heaven cries out, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! On that day, all the saints, all believers from all history, from every nation, will be gathered together and will praise God because He has finally judged the evil world we have lived in. On that day, the saints will ascribe to God salvation and glory and power. Salvation belongs to God. Babylon cannot take it away. Even the prostitute's murder is not strong enough to stop the salvation of God. Uh, Babylon corrupted the world with sin, but in the end, God will save his people from the presence of sin. Salvation belongs to God. Uh, Glory belongs to God. The prostitute tried to glorify herself. The world tried to glorify the beast, but in the end, God alone will get the glory. Glory belongs to God, and power belongs to God. The beast may assemble all the kingdoms of the world. The prostitute may have dominion over the kings of the earth. Those oppressed and persecuted may have been the victims of a power greater than them. But all the power in the world is no match for the power of God. When Babylon is judged, all of heaven will rejoice because God has taken his great power and begun to reign. Power belongs to God. All this praise is ascribed to God, we see, because of his judgments. His judgments, his his verdicts are true and just. God's verdicts are fair. On that day, God's verdict will be that the great prostitute, Babylon, is guilty. Babylon is guilty of corrupting the earth with immorality. Babylon is guilty of also shedding the blood of the prophets and the saints. And so God will then judge Babylon and repay her for what she has done. uh, God will avenge the debts of his people. And so the multitude praises a second time in verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. When God judges Babylon, he will judge her with an eternal punishment. And heaven will praise God on the one hand because it is good and right. Babylon, this evil world around us, is worthy of an eternal punishment 
because she has sinned against an infinitely holy God. But not only that, they'll also rejoice, we will rejoice, because her eternal punishment means that once and for all, Babylon will never rise again. Never again will we live in an evil world. Never again will we experience an evil system or an evil kingdom or an evil culture. And so the praise continues in verses 4 and 5. And the 24 elders, the four living creatures, these angelic beings in the throne room, they fall down and worship God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and you who fear him, small and great. The angels echo praise for God's judgment. All God's people are called to join in because this moment of God's final judgment, which has been prayed for, begged for, which has been anticipated for generations, has finally come. On that day, God's people will receive God's salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. On that day, those of us in Christ, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, will receive an aspect of God's salvation that has not been fully realized yet. There's multiple aspects to salvation, according to Scripture. Those who trust in Jesus have already been saved from the penalty of sin. We deserve the judgment of God because of our sin, but if we have placed our faith in Jesus to forgive us our sin, he has promised that we will not be judged along with the rest of the world. So those who trust in Christ have already been saved from the penalty of sin, this judgment that we see in Revelation 19. But there's another aspect to salvation. Those who trust in Jesus are also being saved presently from the power of of sin. Because even after Jesus forgives us of our sin, we still sin. We still have a sin nature. We've gotten used to living in the immorality that the whole earth is corrupted with. But Jesus teaches us gradually how to say no to sin and say yes to him more and more. He is saving us from the power of sin in the present. Uh, but it's not just this being saved from the penalty of sin in the past. It's not just being saved from the, uh, pre- or from the power of sin here in the present. It's also, there's also a future sense to salvation. On that day that God judges Babylon, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Now, even that has a couple aspects to it. One aspect of this future salvation is that we will be saved from the sin within us. And we're going to look at that in later portions of Revelation. What's in view here in Revelation 19 is how we will be saved from the presence of sin around us. God's judgment of Babylon is a means by which he is saving his people from the presence of sin around us. Though today the earth is corrupted with immorality, on that day, immorality will be eradicated from the earth. Never again will we be sinned against. Can you imagine? Never again will we be slandered. 
We will not be betrayed. We will not be persecuted. And never again will we be tempted to sin by the world around us. We will not be tempted by worldly pleasures. We will not be tempted by worldly power. We will not be tempted by worldly possessions. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. Salvation through judgment. And like with every aspect of salvation, we will be saved from the presence of sin by grace and through faith. The Bible teaches that salvation comes in Christ alone, by grace alone, and through faith alone. This salvation, this future salvation, will be a gift of God's grace. God's grace, God's doing, this eradication of evil. And that's really important for us to remember. We need to remember that we are not responsible for fixing the corruption of the world ourselves. God has not put that burden on our shoulders. Uh, And I say this because there are some good, godly, well-meaning brothers and sisters who believe that Christ calls us not only to follow Christ personally, and not only to make disciples, but also to Christianize society and Christianize culture and Christianize institutions um, uh, to, to, to eradicate evil and, and to, to, to make a Christian world and society. And this is certainly not a sinful desire. That's a desire for something that's wonderful and good. But I do believe that that pursuit is putting a responsibility on Christians that God never meant for us to bear. Instead, I believe we should focus our attention on receiving God's future salvation by grace and through faith. Through faith. We trust that Christ will save us from the presence of sin in the world. We have faith that Christ is going to do this, that it will be his doing when this salvation comes, when this eradication of evil comes, when the corruption is removed. And so, May we continue in faith, believing that he will eradicate sin when he returns. When our faith in Christ to save us from the presence of sin, when our faith is in Christ to save us from the presence of sin, we will live differently. Because we trust that Jesus will destroy the sinful world, we will not love the world. Or love the things in the world. We will instead look forward to the day that Jesus frees the world from the corruption of sin. And because we trust Jesus will save the world, not us, we'll spend less time trying to make the world a better place through political and social change. And instead, spend our energy doing what God has called us to do. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Making disciples of Jesus. And by doing these things, we anticipate God's salvation through judgment. The second way to long for your wedding day, prepare to be joined to your bridegroom. Prepare to be joined to your bridegroom. Now, 
in this uh, second section, I actually want to start by looking at verse 10. John says, Then I fell down at his feet, the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John was so excited and so just overwhelmed by what the angel has just said to him, he actually bowed down and tried to worship this angel. But the angel quickly corrects John. He says, hey, I'm not the one you should be worshiping. I'm just here to tell you about the one that you should be worshiping. He says, I'm just doing the same thing that you and the other prophets are doing. I'm, I'm testifying about Jesus. But what was it that was so amazing, so overwhelming, that John was just beside himself and he actually tried to worship the one who told him about these amazing things? Well, let's take a look. This section begins, just like the first one, with a multitude. Look at verse 6. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The multitude praises God for His reign. The destruction of Babylon, the destruction of the evil world has prepared the way. Once the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth is out of the way, All that is left is for God to reign. He will reign without challenge, without rival, and without rebellion for all of eternity. This will be the day that heaven celebrated in Revelation 11, 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And when the Lord reigns, Christ and his people can finally be joined together. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. There is rejoicing in heaven because it's finally wedding day. Throughout the Old Testament, God described his relationship to Israel in terms of a marriage, his people, or his bride. And then that's continued in the New Testament. In fact, the picture is ultimately fulfilled in the relationship between Christ and the church. The New Testament even goes so far as to teach that human marriage is just a foreshadow of the ultimate marriage, the true marriage between Jesus, the Lamb, and his bride, the church. So this moment described here in Revelation 19 is the day that the bride, the church, is waiting for today. At the moment, today, the church of Jesus Christ is betrothed to Jesus. In ancient Jewish culture, betrothal was similar to what we would call engagement. Uh, During betrothal, the bride and groom were already considered legally husband and wife, even though they weren't married yet. But uh, at that, during that betrothal, the groom would pay a dowry to the father of the bride, and there would be an interval of time between the betrothal and the wedding. And during that interval of time, the bride would prepare herself for her wedding day. 
At the end of that time, the groom would come in, in a grand procession and his wedding garb with his friends and with singing and celebration. He would come to take his bride home. And then would come the, the wedding feast, the marriage supper, celebrating the wedding of the bride and groom. Well, our groom, Jesus Christ, has already paid the dowry, as it were, by dying to purchase us with his blood. And now we, as the bride of Christ, are in that interval between the betrothal and the wedding day. We're awaiting the day described here in Revelation 19, when our groom will come back to take us to our forever home. In the meantime, though, we as the bride are called to make ourselves ready. A few weeks ago, uh, we went up to Wisconsin for my sister-in-law's wedding, and uh, Sela was the flower girl, and she was excited because she got to go early and be uh, uh, there with the bride and the bridesmaids and get ready with them the morning of the wedding. And so she got to see all the bride's preparation for her wedding day, the hair and makeup, the putting on the wedding dress, putting on the veil, uh, the fancy jewelry and fancy shoes. There's all this adornment for this most important day. Well, so what about the church? What about the bride of Christ? How, how does the bride of Christ adorn herself? How, how does the church prepare to be joined to her groom, her bridegroom? Well, I see two ways. Uh, first of all, prepare through good works. Prepare through good works. Look at verse 8 again. So the tail end of 7 there is, bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So on that day, the bride of Christ is going to wear a beautiful wedding dress, but the beautiful wedding dress that we are going to adorn ourselves in as the bride of Christ is our righteous deeds. The preparation of the bride of Christ is what's known throughout Scripture as the process of sanctification. It's what I was describing earlier and how Christ saves us gradually from the power of sin. It's the process by which we become more and more like Christ in our thoughts, in our words, and our actions. Notice in these verses the relationship between our role and God's role in preparation for our wedding day. On the one hand, the bride makes herself ready. So, in other words, we, the saints, live out righteous deeds. We grow in becoming more obedient to God. We learn more and more about how to love God and how to love neighbor. We commit ourselves to good works so that the world will see and glorify our Father in heaven. But on the other hand, in this text, we see it is granted to the bride to clothe herself. Because we're not just left on our own as the bride to prepare ourselves. Christ, our groom, prepares us. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God does not call us to do righteous deeds and then leave us on our own to figure out how to do them. We can obey because Christ is sanctifying us. We can bear fruit because the Holy Spirit is in us to empower us to produce that fruit. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work out because God works in. God is at work to empower us, to renew our minds, to change our affections. And so we are called then to work hard to put sin to death and to pursue righteousness, to grow in obedience by his power at work within us. This marriage of the Lamb gives us a vision for why we're doing what we're doing in the sanctification process. When you work to put sin to death, you're not just improving your life here and now. You're preparing for our wedding day. When you take active steps to grow in godliness, to become a more godly man, a more godly woman, you're not just improving your relationships or life at work or your well-being. You are getting ready for what eternal life with our husband is going to be like. This is one way we prepare to be joined to our bridegroom through good works, through righteous deeds, growing in sanctification as Christ sanctifies us. But there's a second way that we prepare to be joined to our bridegroom. We prepare through remembering. We prepare through remembering. In Revelation 19.9, we come to what is the fourth of seven blessed statements in Revelation. Look at Revelation 19, verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So the wedding symbolism continues here, but it's tweaked just a little bit in this verse. In the previous verses, the saints Together, collectively, the church was called the bride. But here the saints are individually envisioned as invited guests to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a feast that has been anticipated for a very long time. Um, Turn with me to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. If you're looking for Isaiah, it's roughly in the middle of your Bible. If you open up your Bible about halfway, you'll hit Psalms, hang a right, and you'll find Isaiah. Isaiah 25 has a lot of overlap with Revelation 19. Isaiah 25 
is focused on the end of the age. And this chapter actually begins, like Revelation 19, by praising God for making the fortified city a ruin, uh, just as Revelation 19 uh, looks at God's judgment on the great city Babylon. And then Isaiah 25 goes on to describe the salvation that God will bring to his people when he reigns on Mount Zion. So let's read together Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah foretells the end times feast that's celebrated in Revelation 19. It's a time of celebration and gladness because God has forever put an end to death and sadness and shame and fear and evil. This is the salvation that the people of God had waited for. This is a, a feast that has been anticipated for a long time, but it's not just a feast that was anticipated a long time ago. This is a feast that we anticipate every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Mark 14 tells us about the night that Jesus was betrayed. In verses 22 through 25, Mark writes, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave to them. And he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. As Jesus had his last supper with his disciples, he instituted a meal that his disciples were to continue to share with one another after he was gone. He told them to eat bread and to drink of this fruit of the vine. His, this bread is his broken body this cup is his shed blood because he was about to go to the cross to pay the dowry for his bride. He was going to experience sorrow and shame so that he could clothe his bride in salvation and present her to himself holy 
and without blemish. He was going to the cross to be swallowed up by death so that he could swallow up death forever. On the third day, he would rise again to provide eternal life for all who trust in him. But then he would ascend to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father until the interval between betrothal and the wedding day was over. Until the day that he would come back for his bride, until his wedding day. But as Jesus gave his disciples the bread and the cup to remember him by, he promised that one day he would drink with them again. There will come a day when evil will be eradicated. There will come a day when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God. And on that day, Jesus will drink with his disciples again. On that day, the people of God will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. And on that day, the bride will have made herself ready. I wonder, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you longing for your wedding day? Are you anticipating God's salvation through judgment? Are you trusting Christ to save you from your sin? Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Are you trusting Christ to save you from the presence of sin? Are you preparing to be joined to your bridegroom? Are you pursuing the righteous deeds that Jesus has granted you to clothe yourself in? I remember about our engagement was the days leading up to the wedding. That reality, that event that we were looking forward to changed everything about every day between the day she said yes and the day we said I do. Every meal, every moment, every act, I remember I had a conversation with my pastor at the time about something that we were going to be doing and he was even of this mind. He, he, he saw, as we were talking about this ministry initiative, he said, hey, hey, listen, you don't need to be thinking about this. You just worry about getting married. Because when that day is coming, when that engagement is, uh, is on, uh, everything about every day is shaped by this reality. The longing, the anticipation, the expectation. And that's how our betrothal to Christ should shape every day of every moment until we come to that moment of the wedding day. So are you ready? Are you longing for your wedding day? Are your affections so set on that day that everything else is shaped by that? Are you anticipating the day that all this other stuff gets out of the way so you can just focus on Christ? Are you, are you starting to prepare now with the good deeds that you'll clothe yourself in on the wedding day? If so, let me invite you to the Lord's table this morning. But even as you're looking at your heart and you're saying, man, I, 
I am not longing the way I should. My, my present is not being shaped by the future wedding day like it should. Let me invite you to this table. This table is not meant for perfect people to show how good they're preparing for the wedding day. This table is also meant for those who aren't anticipating like they should to remind you, to stir up your affections, to stir up your longing, to remind you of what's coming, to remind you of how your life should be shaped, of what your thoughts and your actions and and your everyday life should be looking like because one day we are not going to be in this room eating this meal. One day we're going to stop taking the Lord's Supper because we will be with the Lord forever. Let's come to the table today to prepare our hearts to be joined to the bridegroom. When we take the Lord's Supper, we we look to the past to remember Jesus' death in our place. He was judged for us so that we would not be judged along with Babylon. His body was broken, his blood was shed for our unrighteousness so that he could clothe us in his perfect righteousness. We also take the Lord's Supper to look to the present, to remember the unity of the body of Christ. As we quoted before, there is one body, and because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. But we also take the Lord's Supper to look to the future, to remember that Jesus is coming again, and we'll be joined to our bridegroom, and we will feast with him. The Lord's table is for the bride of Christ, those who have placed their faith in Jesus to save them from their sins. So if you're not yet a believer, we would ask you to refrain from partaking and instead use this time to consider this. Jesus wants to invite you to his marriage supper. You can have eternal life with him forever. If you repent of your sins and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. We encourage those of you who are believers to examine your hearts so you can partake in a worthy manner. Again, this is not a meal for the sinless. If that was the case, no one would partake. But it is a meal for those who are being saved from the power of sin. And so if your heart is harboring unrepentant sin that you're not willing to give up, please refrain until you have repented and you can come freely to partake. But if you are a member of the body of Christ, a member of the bride of Christ, Jesus invites you to his table. And this is not just a meal for our local body. It's a meal for the global body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so if you are a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church in good standing, we would welcome you to partake with our church. In a moment, I'll pray, and then we'll sing a song as uh, you come Take the elements uh, during that song. As you're ready, you can come up to the table, receive the elements, and we would ask that you take them back to your seat uh, and hold on to them so that we can all partake together. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. Salvation and glory and power belong to you, our God. And we long for the day that you come to judge and you eradicate evil from the world. 
We long for the day that you will reign forever. We long for our wedding day. We long to experience perfect intimacy with Christ. We long to feast in endless joy that Christ is ours forevermore. And so, Lord, may this meal be a foretaste of that meal. May we remember what Christ did for us, and would you use this moment to increase our longing for the day we see him face to face. Be honored as we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.